Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's so many incredible lessons that are just like bubbling up from the Parsha and from just everything that's been going on in the world. And we'll just take them one by one. And let's start with this idea of prayer, because a lot of people are really, they're praying a lot right now, and prayer can be a very confusing process. In fact, the very basic dynamic of prayer, if God already knows what's going on in my heart, why do I have to verbalize it? Even the most basic premise of prayer can be very challenging. And then, even more challenging than that, is sometimes or often we pray and we we don't see our prayers answered or we feel as though our prayers aren't being answered and then we we fear even more deeply that maybe I'm not being heard or maybe even worse there's no one to hear me so so prayer is very complicated sometimes on an emotional level and and so how do we how do we deal with that how do we deal with that so let's, let's take a lesson from Avraham Avinu. And there's an amazing chapter here where he goes out to pray for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he prays for mercy. And we'll, we'll get into some of the details of his prayer because there's some very instructive things about it. But, but to hold off on that for a second, just the very fact that he's praying for mercy and the next day, he comes back to that same place and he sees a pillar of smoke going up from the cities that he was praying for. And so the question is, how would you feel if you were Avram and Vina? So I think the basic honest answer is you would feel as though God didn't answer your prayer. You, you prayed for mercy and there was destruction. And so Reb Tzadik HaKoyin brings down like a very, very fundamental lesson, which addresses a lot of the questions that we started with. And that is, is it really true that Abraham's prayer was not answered? So we see that Lot was spared. Lot and his family. Now, why is that so significant? Because Lot is the progenitor of Moab. And Moab is the progenitor of Ruth. And Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, David of Melech, which is the Messianic line. And so, on the one hand, on the level of just sort of like reacting, like you look with your eyes, you see a pillar of smoke, that's, a, that's the, seemingly the opposite of what you wanted. And yet on a deeper level, God is answering your prayer and bringing ultimate redemption in the world. So, so there's a life to a prayer. I wanted to make a, a, an animation. Maybe I'll still make it one of these days. Just a, like a little short thing where you actually see the life of a prayer. <laughs> you know, you see someone utter a prayer 
and then it go up, and it, it, all the different forms it takes until it comes back down into the world as the answered prayer. And so any prayer that emanates from the heart has an effect on the world. That's the, that's, that's the reality. That's the reality. And, and I'll give you another teaching which will bring this idea more fully into, into our consciousness. So Rabbi Akiva was absolutely maybe the greatest rabbi ever. In fact, it says in the Gemara that Moshe Rabbeinu said, why did you give the Torah to me? Why didn't you give it to Rabbi Akiva? So, so from there you see the greatness of Rabbi Akiva. So he was really like, in terms of all the rabbis of the Talmud, arguably the, the king. So Rabbi Akiva famously didn't begin learning Torah until he was 40 years old. And what was the turning event? In fact, it's more than that. He, if, he, if he saw a Torah scholar, it says that he wanted to bite him like a donkey. Like, I, I've never been bitten by a donkey, but I imagine you don't want to be bitten by a donkey. <laughs> you know, maybe it's like a pit bull or something like that that really holds on to its, you know, whatever it's biting. So whatever it is, this is what's taught about Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva takes, really, what was that? I mean, how do you even understand that? Was that hatred or whatever it is? I think, you know, if you'll permit me to uh, analyze it for a moment, what I think it is is something that perhaps we can identify with in our own lives. Sometimes you have a very strong desire or maybe even a strong gift in a particular area. And for whatever reason, it's trapped inside of you and you're really not able to, to bring it out in the world in the way that you want to. And sometimes because of that, if you see another person who's successfully bringing that out into the world, you don't, it causes like, you want to bite them like a donkey, basically, to use the same language. And it's, it, it's nothing against, really, on a deeper level, it's nothing against that person. Rather, you're experiencing turmoil and frustration with your own inability to get that gift that's inside of you out. Now imagine, assuming that's true, imagine the greatness that was inside of Rabbi Akiva. For 40 years, you didn't just have this sort of like sense that, hey, I could do that, or I bet I could be good at that. You had the greatest rabbi ever. Looking at other people who were actually on that road in a way that he wasn't able to quite manifest in his life yet. So I think that that's what this teaching means, that when you'd see a Torah scholar before he began learning Torah, that he'd want to bite them like a donkey it wasn't, obviously it wasn't hatred for Torah because he was the greatest. I think it was this frustration inside of himself. Okay, so what turns him around? What's the turning point? 40, you know, that's it's a lot of years not to be doing something, right? So it says that he was walking and he, he saw like this kind of waterfall but like a very gentle waterfall. And there was like, at one point it was just drips of water and drips of water on a rock. And he noticed something quite amazing, very striking, that in this particular place, 
the water had been dripping on this particular rock over a period of time such that it made a hole through the rock. Now, the Talmud compares Torah to water. And Rabbi Akiva looked at that and he said, if this can make a hole through this rock, then surely the Torah, which is compared to water, can enter my heart, which is like a rock. And that's what happened. So, so now here's, let's analyze his logic because we're going to learn something very surprising in a moment. It would seem like, and I think everyone would probably reach the same conclusion, including myself, it would seem like his logic is as we described it, that the dripping of the water, the constant erosion of the dripping of the water on the rock created a hole in the rock. And so he compared his heart to the rock, and that's what it is. So the Vilna Gon says that wasn't his logical conclusion at all. He made a very different logical deduction from what he observed. Okay, that's interesting. What, what, did, he, what did he observe? He said that each time the water drops on the rock, I see no change to the rock whatsoever. And yet, now that I've seen that over time it makes a hole in the rock, that means every time the water drips on the rock, there is a change even if I can't see it with my eyes. That every little bit counts and is significant and is transformative, even if I can't see it with my eyes. And that's the lesson that he learned. And that's why at 40, he was able to devote himself to Torah with the foreknowledge that so much that he's going to be doing, he's not going to be able to see any huge appreciative change, but that if he stays with it, transformation will occur. And boy, did it occur. So we see that this is the same teaching in a different way as Abraham's prayer. Abraham prays, and still he sees the city is destroyed, and yet nonetheless that prayer brought Mashiach into the world. And even though he couldn't see it with his eyes, it's no less true. You know, there's a teaching that is, seems... Like for some people, it's maybe like, like beyond <laughs> where they're holding in terms of being able to absorb, bless you, spirituality. You know, like where it's sort of like, okay, now you said something that kind of went one step too far in terms of what I can, my rational mind can comfortably accommodate. What's the teaching? So the sages teach in Perkei Avos that when you do a mitzvah, you create an angel. And when you do something wrong, you create an emissary from the other side, right? The opposite of an angel. So what, let's, let's, let's try to understand what that means exactly. 
Because once you appreciate it a little bit more, once we dig in a little bit, you'll, you'll see that that actually makes total sense, absolute sense. So imagine hugging someone that you have, you know, that you like, friend, parent, whatever it is, brother, sister, whatever it is. You know when you give them a big hug, you can actually feel an energy coming out of you or you can feel an energy coming out of them. That's why people love hugs so much because there's this, there's this energy transfer that's palpable. You know, it's not, you can actually feel it in the moment. That's why over, over Shabbos, we heard one of the soldiers say that, you know something, can you just send a spiritual hug our way? And so, so we just kind of all concentrated for a moment and tried to send a, a spiritual hug to all the captives, to all the soldiers, to all those who are suffering loss and everything like this. Maybe we'll just take a moment right now. Just can breathe in, breathe out. Let's just send that energy, that healing energy to our brothers and sisters. Okay. So here's, here's the new idea about creating an angel or creating something else, something darker. Here's the new idea. Not just that something gets created, because just like when you give someone a hug, you feel life force coming out of you. When you do a mitzvah or something that's not a mitzvah, there's also an expression of life force that leaves you, right? And that life force that leaves you when you're doing a mitzvah, that's a positive energy. And that energy becomes something. Just like on the other side, if someone wants to, you know, get very angry and start yelling, bless you, start yelling at someone, right? Yelling, screaming. That is also an emission of, emission of life force. But it's a darker life force. And that darker life force also enters into the world. But now, here's the more interesting part. That, that, that in itself is interesting, because you realize what started off as the idea of creating angels and demons, what are you talking about, right? Now all of a sudden you go, oh wait, this is all just about energy. You go, okay, yeah, well that, actually that makes sense. But, but here's the more interesting idea. After that energy leaves you, it has a lifespan of its own. In other words, you're creating this packet of energy that has an integrity to it and continues to exist in the world. That's the fascinating part. And so when we talk about prayer, when you really pray from your heart, when you really pray from your heart, you're absolutely emitting energy from yourself. And that prayer has a life force and a lifespan that continues beyond the moment that you prayed. Now, if you're Abraham Avinu and you're one of the greatest creatures that ever existed 
and you're praying with all of your might, that prayer turns into the redemption of the entire world, which is what this teaching is saying. The lifespan of a prayer after it's uttered and even forgotten, right? Because how many prayers do we even remember praying over the course of our life? And yet all of those prayers are out there in the world acting. Acting on creation. Affecting creation. Now, let's go on to the next part. So we're talking about the destruction of these cities. So Lot is in Sodom, also known as Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were actually two cities. But he was in Sodom. And I'll tell you something that I, I've never seen written, but I, I learned it from Reb Shlomo. I thought this was fascinating, just so you know. You know, Lot was like the closest disciple of Avraham. And they had, I don't think it was really from Avraham's side, but they had a falling out. How did that happen? Because they were, they were grazing. They each had like a lot of cattle and stuff like that. And the, the, the people who were the herdsmen who worked for Lot were sort of like grazing their cattle on lands that weren't theirs, which is also known as theft. And so there grew some contention between the, the, the cattlemen of Abraham and the cattlemen of Lot. And what they realized was that it's better for everyone if they sort of separate. And so Abraham and Lot now are going to go their separate ways. And of all the places in the world for Lot to pick where to go, he picked Sodom, which was known even then as like, like a really, really low place. Now he becomes like the judge, one of the sort of seeming leaders of that area, but he's really kind of negatively affected in a large way by, by that atmosphere. It's not a win for Lot, and it's not a win for Avraham. And this is the point that I wanted to share with you, which is that Avraham really mourned the loss of Lot and really felt like his top, top disciple had left him, had, so to speak, in today's modern parlance, you know, gone off the derech, you know, just kind of left, kind of, left the proper path. So it's interesting because you don't see a lot on that. You don't see a lot on that. But that it wasn't a simple parting when Lot left Abraham. Anyway, Abraham waged an entire war to get Lot back. A world war. The first world war was because Lot was kidnapped and Abraham sacrificed or, or was willing to sacrifice his life in order to save him. And he does that. And anyway... And now Abraham's prayer is answered through Lot. In other words, Lot and his family is now going to be saved. And there's one bit of instruction, which is that when you leave the city and it's being destroyed, don't look back. And famously, as they're fleeing, Lot's wife looks back 
and becomes a pillar of salt. And I've always wondered about that. Like, and you know, there's, I'll tell you the classic teaching on it, but it doesn't do anything to explain it better for me, by the way. <laughs> but I'll just tell you since, you know, you're, before we go to the depths, you should always start with like the basic understanding. So I'm gonna give you the classic understanding, which is that she, Lot's wife was very stingy with salt. Salt was very valuable back in the day. Like it was like gold, by the way, just in case you didn't know. And we'll, we'll explain it a little bit better, but salt is a preservative. And so in the day before refrigeration, you know, especially I would imagine in a desert climate where it gets really hot, and I would imagine that that would make root, food rot quicker, right? Salt, you needed salt to keep your food fresh, basically. So there was a girl who asked Lot's wife for salt, and she didn't give her any salt. And so as a result, Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. That's the classic teaching. I admit I don't really understand it. I mean, it, it sounds like immediately understandable. Like, oh, she didn't give any salt, so she became salt. But, okay, no, 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 I got that parallel. <laughs> that part I got. <laughs> but the whys and the, anyway. I want to give you my understanding. So this came to me on Shabbos. So let me just preface it by, by telling you one of my favorite teachings from Reb Shlomo. You know, if you go to a traditional Shabbos table, when they make the blessing over the challah, they dip it in salt. And then everyone gets a piece of challah. So the question is, why are you dipping challah in salt? The bread in the salt, why? And so Reb Shlomo explains like this, that salt is a preservative. It makes old things last, right? As we explained. But challah, bread, is only good if it's fresh. So you know what we're doing when we're dipping the challah in the salt? We're combining the new and the old. Right? We're making old things new, but not so new that you don't recognize them from the old. Right? That's the challenge of every generation, to take our tradition as it's been handed over to us at the price of how many millions of people giving up their life, by the way. Like when we have things giving, given over to us from previous generations, it's not just like, you know, your grandfather passed a textbook down to your father and your father passed a textbook down to, to you. There are millions of lives, literally millions of sacrificed lives in that textbook that's being handed down to you. Like when we say we do things this way, it's not like we just do things this way. Millions of people died in order to preserve the teaching that this is the proper way to do this thing. So we, we preserve the old. But you know something? If the old is just a chain around our neck, then what do I need it for? Right? If I just feel oppressed by the tradition, then I'm not going to hand it on. Or if I do hand it on to the next generation, 
it's going to be in such a lackluster fashion that they're going to discard it entirely, as we've seen, unfortunately. So you got to make it new. you got to make it like challah. you got to make it fresh and delicious. you got to take your unique gifts and your unique perspective, and you have to infuse it into what we've received, and then you make it new and beautiful, and you make it come alive. And then it becomes even stronger. Right? Because then you can pass it on in a way that's using all of your life force and life essence. Okay, so good. So now we appreciate salt a little bit more. So now let's get back to the question. What does it mean Lot's wife looks back when she's not supposed to on the destruction of this city and turns into a pillar of salt? So I want to say like this. Her whole essence became the preservation of traumatic memory. So many of us are walking around and all we are are pillars of salt looking back on the trauma of our life and growing up and preserving the trauma of what we've experienced. And so the instructions is don't look back. Don't look back, look forward. Right? What does it mean to look forward? To look forward means that I'm praying to God and I'm seeing that the future on some level is unwritten. The future is unwritten in terms of how these great promises are going to manifest themselves. And I can play that role in terms of how these great promises actually become manifest in the world. It's going to happen through me and through my choices. And for that reason, I look forward and I don't get discouraged. Even if I don't see the change that I want to bring about manifest right in front of my eyes in the moment. Because I know that that change is taking place. Now, I want to give over a couple of teachings from the Haftarah that we read this past Shabbos. And again, I want to tell you another foundational idea from Reb um, that I haven't heard people say, which is that the Haftorah, the section from the prophets that's sort of linked to the Parsha of the week in the Torah itself, in the five books, that that prophecy came down Motse Shabbos after Shabbos of the Parsha of the week. So in other words, when we're reading whatever prophet it is that's sort of like a join to the section of the Torah, that prophet had that prophecy that Saturday night. That Motzei Shabbos. Okay. So there are two stories about two different women and the prophet Elisha. The prophet Elisha was very great. He was the top disciple of Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. And Eliyahu ascended in this chariot of fire to heaven. And Elisha was there and he witnessed it. And whatever miracles Eliyahu did, Elisha also did in his lifetime. So these are two stories about Elisha. And the first one is like this. There's a woman who's very poor. 
and so poor that she has debtors and they're about to take her two sons um, into slavery, basically, indentured servitude, because that's how they're going to get their debts repaid from her. So she's desperate. And she goes to Elisha, and she... And Elisa, Elisha says back to her, do you have anything of value in your house? And she says, no. He says, anything. She says, well, I have one little cruise of oil, one little kind of jar of oil. He goes, okay. Go and borrow vessels, as many vessels as you can get. And then go back to your house. And when you're behind closed doors, pour the oil that you have into one of the pots. And keep on pouring until all of the pots are filled. So this is an amazing miracle. She starts pouring. And from this little jar, the pouring doesn't stop. The oil doesn't stop until she's filled all of these vessels. And it says that she then had enough to repay the debts and money to live on. So she got quite a, quite a large sum of money through this miracle. But, but here's the part that I'm telling you this for. She then says to her son, go get more vessels. And her son says, there are no more vessels. And then the miracle stops. So let's, let's kind of break that down because there's a very, very powerful teaching there. You see, there is what we call shefa, light, blessing, coming down from heaven all of the time. All of the time. And the question is, do we have the vessels in our own life to hold the blessing that's coming down? Now, what are vessels in this context? They're not jars in our kitchen. They're not pots in our kitchen. The vessels are good deeds, essentially. The vessels are mitzvot that we've performed, loving kindness that we've done with others. This creates vessels that holds the blessing and the light that's coming down from above. And the more vessels we have and the wider and the larger the vessels that we have, which is directly commensurate with the amount of energy and effort and love that we put into the action, that's what creates the vessel. And the more love, the larger the vessel, that holds the light. So isn't it interesting, when she ran out of vessels, all of a sudden, the miracle stops. Now, let's take it one step further, because I think this is one practical lesson we can learn from this. She asked her son for more vessels, and her son said, there are no more vessels. What had happened, what would have happened, I wonder, if she herself had gone out and gotten more vessels? In other words, 
For her son, there weren't any more vessels. But the miracle was flowing for her. And so what I want to learn out from that is, if it's flowing for you, don't pass the responsibility to somebody else. If it's flowing for you, don't pass the responsibility to someone else. Because you know something? And again, this is just me talking here. But her son may have checked 10 places and he would have felt like, okay, that's the 10 places. It says in the Talmud that if you want to talk about dream interpretation for a moment, that the dream goes according to the interpretation. So that's why it's always very important to give a positive interpretation to a dream because you're sort of shaping how that energy manifests in, in the world. So if anyone ever tells you a dream, whatever dream it is, always say, it's a good dream. Just say those words. That's the first thing that you should say. It's a good dream. And if you don't have the ability to give a more detailed, positive interpretation, then don't. Because you might even be limiting the goodness of that dream in your attempt to give a positive interpretation. So say, it's a good dream. Again, there's a connection between the fact that the, this woman says, bring me more vessels. That's like, so to speak, the dream, because a miracle is like, has a dreamlike quality to it, because it's so out of sync with normal, everyday reality, like dreams are. And the child gives his interpretation, there are no more vessels. Another lesson is that don't tell your dreams to people who aren't on the level to know to give a positive interpretation. Okay, that's, that's the first story in the Haftorah. Now there's a second story in the Haftorah, and this is something that I've been trying to be sensitive to lately, and it's, it's like yielding a lot of like amazing insights. So I'll just tell you, just so you can be mindful of it uh, on your own. And I've been using the, the art scroll chumash, the stone chumash. That's the blue one that's very, very popular. You see it in a lot of places. And what they do is they, when it comes to the Haftorah at the end, you know, there's so many different Jewish communities and over history, so many different communities from around the world. And they have different traditions in terms of how much of the Haftorah they read. Many times, everyone's reading all of it. But sometimes you'll see like a little note, like in the art scroll, Chabad, Hasidim, stop reading here. Or Sephardim, stop reading here. Or Ashkenazim, stop reading here. It's interesting. That's interesting. And so I've been looking, why do they stop there? Like what point is being brought out that they want to emphasize that's being stopped there? Or why don't they continue? What don't they like? and therefore they don't include this next part. So it gives you the material to come up with something interesting. Okay, so there's a fascinating one this week. And I'll tell you this story. So this is another miracle that Elisha the prophet did. Again, he was the main disciple of Eliyahu HaNavi, right? He, Eliyahu is the one who announces the coming of Mashiach, the one who comes to every Pesach table and to every Bris Mila, so Eliyahu and 
And if you merit, if you, if you do some fantastic mitzvah, Eliyahu comes and learns Torah with you. The, the stories and legends of Eliyahu and the people who are privileged to have a contact with Eliyahu are throughout Jewish history, right? He often dresses up like a beggar, right? So it's just a lesson that, you know, don't walk by beggars because you don't know, maybe that's Eliyahu. Okay, so, so Elisha, his number one disciple, used to pass by the house of this Shunammite woman, Jewish woman. I guess that was a region within Israel. And so this woman, she was very righteous, and she says to her husband, you know, this great man, this great man of God, is, he passes by our house on a you know, semi-regular basis, wouldn't it be nice if we built a lodging for him? Like in the attic, we can make a room, we can put a bed in, a table, and a chair, a, you know, like a candlestick. And yeah, he can have a place to stay, like a, like a mensch. And her husband agrees, and they, they build this lodging for Elisha. Really nice. So, so Elisha, in, in modern parlance, is feeling it, so to speak. He's feeling very grateful, you know, and he wants to do something nice for the Shunammite woman. And he asks her, is there, is there anything? And by the way, I, I just want to read you the words because I'm really, I'm really struck by these words. Remember, Alicia just blessed the previous woman in need that this little jar of oil wouldn't stop pouring. Elisha is a miracle maker. But listen to how he speaks, because we've got a piece of dialogue here, which just gives you an insight into the beauty of his character. And, but the key word here is humility, his total humility. He says to her, can something be said on, on your behalf to the king or the army commander? In other words, you know, you, you're, you're, so, you're such a good person. I want to do, pay, repay you in some way. Can I put in a good word with you, with the king or the, you know, the, the, the civil administration? <laughs> this person has the power to make miracles. Right? And yet, that's not how he conducts himself in his normal affairs. Right? Just like, you know, I know some people and maybe I can, you know, whatever. I just think, you know, it's a little thing, but not a little thing. Like, if you have some, a little bit of power, quote unquote, like, do you wield it? Do you, like, how do you manifest it? Like, he's saying it in such a delicate, beautiful way. Anyway, she answers back famously, um, I dwell among my people, meaning that's the ultimate blessing and I don't need anything from you, but thank you. Okay, so then Elisha's number two, Gehazi, says, well, you know, she doesn't have a son. So Elisha goes, okay, I'm going to bless her with a son. Right now we get back to the miracle maker. You know, so he, he comes back 
And he says to her, next year's time you're going to have a son. Now there are always parallels between whatever the Haftorah portion is and the Torah portion of the week is. And there's a whole literature like making connections on a week-to-week basis and everything like this. So just to make a kind of conventional connection here, this is the chapter where Sarah is blessed with a, with a son, and now we have this woman being blessed with a son. Okay. So, so he blesses her with a son. The son grows older. I'm not sure what age he is at this point. But he runs to his father in the field and he says, my head, my head. And the child is like, okay, what's going on? The child is sick. Child collapses. They bring, they bring the child to the mother. And on his mother's lap, the child dies. And she takes the dead child and she puts it on Alicia's bed upstairs in the attic. And she gets on a donkey and she tells her husband, I'm going to see Alicia. And her husband says, but it's not Rosh Chodesh. Like, it's not like a normal time when you would go to see the prophet. And she responds back to him, Shalom, all is well. Now, that's an amazing little conversation back and forth, right? All is well, Shalom. She's got their dead son lying on the bed of Alicia upstairs. And she says nothing about it to her husband. She goes to see Alicia and she says, what are you doing to me? I didn't ask you for anything. And you blessed me with this child and now he's dead. Alicia tells Gehazi, take my cane, my staff, and place the top of it on his face. He does, he does that. The child does not revive. Elisha then goes in, closes the door, and again, now we have this second miracle that's going to happen behind closed doors. And Elisha revives the child. Interestingly, it says the child sneezes seven times and comes back to life. And that's the end of the Haftor. Now, here's my question, because I, I personally find what I'm about to tell you amazing. It says that the communities of Frankfurt on Main, which if you're not familiar with that, was a very, very illustrious, extremely illustrious community, Jewish community in Germany that was actually ravaged and devastated by the Crusades approximately a thousand years ago. But it was huge. So the communities of Frankfurt on Main and Chabad Hasidim stop reading much earlier in this story. And do you know when they stop? When she boards the donkey and tells her husband, Shalom. All is well while the dead child is lying on the bed of the prophet and we haven't seen the happy ending yet. Now, that is clearly, clearly, clearly coming to teach us something very powerful, which is the fact that you don't have to see the good news yet. 
in order to believe that there's going to be a positive ending. Because God is good. So many of us live our lives and we're living it right now collectively as a nation in one long suspended cliffhanger. There are people in tunnels. Our brothers and sisters are in tunnels. And the world's response is when we want to put posters up to tear them down. I saw a tweet. I couldn't believe it. It broke my heart into a middle into a million pieces. They don't tear down posters of lost dogs. No one would think to tear down a poster of a lost dog. But lost human beings who are being kept in tunnels, those they rip down? And then they declare themselves righteous? If this is not a wake-up call by how morality has completely gotten off the tracks and crashed in a fiery collision with delusion, what more do you need to know? And they feel righteous doing it to compound the wickedness? So a great day is coming. A great day is coming. And God willing, we should see it with our eyes. And if we don't see it with our eyes, a great day is still coming. And we're bringing about that great day together. And so empower yourselves. Empower yourselves. Know that every emitting of life force, every prayer has a life to it, continues, has a strength to it, has a reality to it, and counts. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.